0: Listener discretion is advised. This episode features discussions of disease and death that may be upsetting. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. Medical discoveries of the early 20th century slowly transformed society's understanding of how disease spreads. It raised an important question – Should health officials restrict individual freedoms if it's in service of the common good? It's a quandary we're still navigating today, as quarantine restrictions continue to impact everyday life. But health authorities can only go so far to enforce public policy. However, in the 1900s, when epidemiology was in its infancy, the government was more willing to use severe measures to contain the spread of illness. Perhaps the most memorable example was the 1907 capture of Mary Mallon, later nicknamed Typhoid Mary. Forced to spend her days in confinement, Mary's fate paints a grim picture of how far national powers were willing to go to stop the spread. This is Medical Murders, a Spotify original from Parcast. For decades, thousands of medical students have taken the Hippocratic Oath. It boils down to, do no harm. But for the rest of us, who bear our own share of responsibility for communal well-being, there is no such oath. Whether we test ourselves for disease, self-quarantine when contagious, or even wash our hands, is entirely up to us. And in a time when the public was less informed about health, such measures were easily ignored, with lethal consequences.
1: I'm Alastair Murden, and I'm joined by Dr. David Kipper, MD. Hello everyone, I'm Dr. Kipper, and I'm happy to assist Alastair with some medical insight into our concluding episode of Mary Mallon, who remains infamous as Typhoid Mary, and whose story highlights the struggle we continue to have as doctors To identify and successfully treat outbreaks of infectious diseases, like typhoid in the early 20th century, and even today with the COVID pandemic that has affected so many of our lives. You can find
0: episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This is our final episode on Mary Mallon, a domestic cook in the early 1900s who unknowingly infected dozens of people with typhoid. Last week, we explored the start of Mary's career, the trail of deadly outbreaks she caused, and the first investigator to cast her under suspicion. This week, we'll follow a statewide manhunt as Mary attempts to evade authorities endangering public health under a new alias. All this and more coming up, stay with us.
2: New season, out on Spotify soon.
0: For years, Mary Mallon was unaware that she was spreading a deadly disease. But she wasn't alone in her ignorance. The general public knew little about typhoid, leaving them far more susceptible to its deadly clutches. When muscle pains first set in, a sufferer would likely brush it off, thinking they were just tired. When the headache struck, their worsening condition would be harder to ignore. Soon to follow, a dry, hacking cough. But perhaps they were just coming down with a cold. (laughs) It was only when the fever came that fear set in. This wasn't the sort of sickness that could be solved with sleep or proper hydration. Typhoid's high fever progressively worsened. Sufferers were unable to form coherent sentences Followed by nausea and diarrhea, the unlucky victim could then face severe fluid loss. Without antibiotics, relief was nearly impossible. Instead, it was a waiting game of suffering. Either the pain subsided, or death occurred, whichever came first this was the terrifying experience that the warren family braved in the summer of 1906 when typhoid raged through their household the source was none other than their cook 36 year old mary mallon and she might have gotten away with it too like she had after so many other similar outbreaks but this time 37 year old sanitation engineer dr soper was on the case and he soon connected the dots. By March of the following winter, Dr. Soper caught up with his suspect, who was now working at a new home, where yet another outbreak had occurred. Unfortunately, Mary was less than cooperative when Dr. Soper confronted her. She grabbed a carving fork and chased him off the property, and it made sense that Mary was resistant to the idea. If diagnosed as a carrier, she may very well lose her job. But this was exactly what Dr. Soper wanted. Mary's continued employment was dangerous. It had resulted in at least one death so far. Left on the loose, Mary posed a huge risk to public health. But convinced as he was of Mary's contagion, he only had circumstantial evidence against her. What Dr. Soper needed now was hard proof. And so began the hot pursuit of typhoid Mary. Shortly after their run in in March of 1907, Dr. Soper tracked down her home address. Somewhat scandalously, she shared it with a man by the name of A. Brehoff. Mary wasn't home, but Dr. Soper convinced Brehoff to show him their humble abode. It was reportedly dirty and unkempt, which only made Dr. Soper more determined to confront Mary. If she wouldn't offer up a sample to test, he at least wanted to stress the importance of hand-washing to her. Because, from his investigations, Dr. Soper had learned
1: that Mary had a bad habit of ignoring this sanitary precaution. Even in 1907, it was common knowledge that washing one's hands was crucial to stopping the spread of disease. Hand-washing with soap and clean running water is so important because disease-spreading germs attach to people's hands from doing things like handling raw meat or using the bathroom, for instance. These germs then spread to other objects and surfaces and can then attach themselves to other people. Because we subconsciously touch our eyes, noses, and mouths so much throughout the day, it's very easy to get infected or infect others in unsanitary conditions. Mary definitely could have reduced her typhoid transmission by washing her hands. On a molecular level, washing her hands with soap and water would have physically broken apart and destabilized the Salmonella typhi bacteria. Running water then would have carried the damaged and soap-trapped microorganisms away down the drain. As simple as this sounds to us, Mary clearly had some trouble with the concept. The next
0: time Dr. Soper spoke with Mary, she was again insulted and threatened. She erupted into a tirade of insults and curses. She furiously denied any connection to the disease that followed her everywhere. Disheartened, Dr. Soper retreated. But the threat of their accusation must have loomed over Mary's head. She didn't want Dr. Soper tracking her down at her job again. So, Mary quit. Little did she know, Dr. Soper was already escalating the situation. He rushed to his contacts at the New York City Department of Health and urged them to apprehend Mary by force. And they considered it. However, they decided it might be best to try sending a different typhoid inspector first, someone who might be less imposing than Dr. Soper had been, someone who could coax Mary into cooperating. They sent none other than Dr. Sarah Josephine Baker, who would go on to become an influential public health advocate in her own right. Unfortunately, no one warned her that Mary was a force to be reckoned with, and Dr. Baker was utterly unprepared for a confrontation. When she tried to explain the potential risk that Mary posed to those around her and urged her to hand in a stool sample for testing, Mary slammed the door in her face. Although Mary hadn't fully grasped her connection with typhoid, she must have at least understood the severity of this situation. The city's health department was after her. She'd spent her life learning how to support herself as a cook, and now their investigations threatened to take that away. Even worse, Mary feared that they might lock her away like a prisoner. Determined to keep her freedoms, Mary stood her ground. Then, on March 20th, 1907, the city's health officials decided to take the much-needed samples by force. Several police officers arrived in an ambulance and met up with Dr. Baker outside Mary's apartment. With one of the policemen at her side, Dr. Baker walked to Mary's door, hoping to catch the contagious cook by surprise. But Mary was ready. When Dr. Baker knocked on the door, Mary opened it and lunged at her with a long kitchen fork. Instinctively, Dr. Baker stepped backward into the policeman, giving Mary an opportunity to escape. The officers searched the area tirelessly. One of them discovered footprints in the snow, leading to a chair propped against a fence. It appeared that Mary had fled into her neighbor's backyard. The team spent a total of five hours searching through every closet and nook and cranny where Mary's neighbors insisted they hadn't seen anybody. Just when Dr. Baker was ready to give up, one of the officers discovered a torn piece of Mary's clothing. The blue strip of fabric was caught in the door of a closet, which the neighbors had blockaded with a dozen ash cans. As soon as Dr. Baker and the officers pried the closet open, Mary once again came out swinging, defending her name. Even at this point, Mary still seemed to believe wholeheartedly that she was being unfairly pursued. She'd never had typhoid in her life but even the strongest protests couldn't prevent Mary's capture. While she never stopped fighting, police managed to get her in the ambulance. Dr. Baker literally had to sit on Mary all the way to the hospital, later comparing the experience to being in a cage with an angry lion.
1: Dr. Baker and her colleagues had no experience dealing with asymptomatic carriers, let alone ones as violent as Mary. While this was a pretty unprecedented situation at the time, it's hard to find legal justification today in forcibly committing or hospitalizing someone who doesn't want medical treatment. This is really only an option when someone's exhibiting behavior that's dangerous to themselves or others. If this is the case, it'll surely provoke an arrest when a patient resists like Mary did. Force may be necessary, and it could be that things get ugly on a dime. This can get tricky, too, on a number of levels, from ethical and legal perspectives, because it all ties into issues surrounding civil liberties and basic human rights. Today, forcing someone to consult a medical professional is considered an extreme last resort, even for contagious people, who are putting public health at risk. But back then,
0: it was a measure public health officials were willing to take to protect the surrounding population. Mary was placed in Willard Parker Hospital, a facility in Manhattan dedicated to fighting contagious disease, and finally forced to hand over her samples. Coming up, the results of Mary's lab tests make history.
2: Hi, I'm Christine Schieffer. And I'm Em Schultz. We're the hosts of Rituals, the new Spotify original from Parcast. If you've heard our podcast, and that's what we drink, you know we are no strangers to true crime and the paranormal. We're also into the occult uh, to chat about. Not to join, but, you know, to, to learn and educate. <laughs> Every Monday on Rituals, we're journeying through mystifying stories of sorcery, alchemy, Satanism, and more, and trying to determine if the dark arts of the past impact us today. Like weather witches? Who were they? Or the Fountain of Youth? Address, please. (laughs) Don't forget about werewolf trials, Em. Objection, Christine. Let's not give too much away. And instead, let's tell everyone to follow our new podcast, Rituals, free and only on Spotify.
0: Now, back to the story. In March of 1907, 37-year-old Mary Mallon was forcibly detained by public health officials. She had infected at least 22 people with typhoid, though there were probably more. Fighting every step of the way, Mary was taken to Willard Parker Hospital, where scientists finally tested her stool sample. As expected, the tests came back positive for the bacterial agent responsible for typhoid fever. It meant that even though she didn't have any symptoms of the disease, Mary had live typhoid bacteria in her intestines at the time of her capture. To prove that Mary was consistently hosting and spreading the bacteria, Mary's bowel movements were tracked over a longer time period – three times a week for about seven months. In the meantime, public health officials puzzled over Mary's situation. She technically hadn't committed any crimes. She was no criminal. But setting her free, where she would undoubtedly continue to support herself as a cook, would just allow the spread of typhoid to continue. Ultimately, after her arrest in March 1907, authorities shipped Mary to North Brother Island in the East River, close to what is now Rikers Island Jail in New York. According to some accounts, she was mostly confined to a one-room cabin. It was part of a larger complex called Riverside Hospital that
1: housed contagious people at a safe distance from the city. Quarantine stems back all the way to biblical ages, when people with leprosy were sent away from their societies for days on end. But the name actually comes from the Italian word quarantinario. This refers to the 40-day period during which sailors reaching Venice in plague-infested ships were held at a hospital off its coast before they could enter the city. As we've seen in the contemporary world, forced quarantines are still sometimes utilized. Because of the COVID-19 pandemic, many medical systems around the globe were able to push for and establish legal quarantine mandates. For many travelers today, their destinations may require a legally sanctioned period of isolation. If they break a given quarantine law, they can then expect penalties like fines or imprisonment. It can be rough and unpleasant to sequester from others, as we well know from the past couple of years, but, Quarantine works. Its extensive history affirms its effectiveness in regard to mitigating the transmission of illness.
0: Now, the room on North Brother Island might seem like an upgrade from her squalid apartment in Manhattan since Mary's food and living expenses were covered by the city. Then again, the same could be said for the residents of a prison. A number of newspapers at the time reported that Mary lived in near total social isolation, with only a dog for company. Several people tried to interview Mary and find out more about her past. None of these attempts fared much better than Dr. Soper's. Mary always refused to speak about her early life, leaving much of it a mystery. But after those several months of testing her samples, scientists had solved a far more pressing riddle the majority of her samples contained live typhoid bacteria indicating beyond a shadow of a doubt that mary Mallon was an asymptomatic carrier of typhoid fever and probably would be for the
1: rest of her life although some asymptomatic carriers had already been reported in europe Mary Mallon was the first healthy carrier of the pathogen to be discovered in the United States. The controlled testing involved here provided the global scientific community with a much deeper understanding and appreciation of people like her. The revelations about her health status allowed New York City health officials to identify more asymptomatic carriers, which surely helped prevent some disease spread and save some lives. These findings also furthered the general understanding of Salmonella typhi and typhoid fever as an illness, which helped fuel immunization development and the later antibiotic treatment that emerged around 1948. Clearly, studying asymptomatic carriers is very useful when it comes to fighting against the spread of infection for a number of reasons. The definitive discovery of Mary's condition was, to say the least, a scientific feat.
0: Realizing that asymptomatic carriers like Mary could be an extreme hazard to the public, the New York Department of Health immediately began searching for others. They also had to figure out a way to deal with them. To help organize their response, scientists and doctors gathered at a medical symposium in June 1908. The name Typhoid Mary is thought to have originated during these discussions, and the term soon found its way into a medical textbook. Just like that, Mary Mallon was saddled with the unflattering moniker, permanently linking her identity to death and disease. According to Mary, the resulting stress caused her to develop a serious eye twitch, but because she was quarantined, no eye doctor would tend to her. Soon, her
1: eyelid became paralyzed. Psychosomatic symptoms sometimes present in patients experiencing a great deal of stress, anxiety, depression, and other psychological traumas. Some commonly reported examples are brain fog, constipation, and sweaty palms. Psychosomatic symptoms are really the result of a mind-body collision, where emotional stress prompts the production of fight-or-flight hormones like cortisol and adrenaline. This bodily response can even weaken the immune system and deplete levels of serotonin, a calming neurochemical that helps stabilize mood. Because everyone's biochemical makeup is unique, some of us have overly active stress reactions, and those that do may be at a higher risk for developing psychosomatic issues. In relation to Mary, the eye-twitching she was experiencing is pretty common. Today, one recognized cause is a condition called ocular myokymia, where the eyelid spasms due to stress, overtiredness, and being excessively caffeinated. Whatever was going on with Mary, it was likely due to her mentally taxing situation. Fortunately, her condition stopped after about six months, but
0: it would be much longer before her overall situation improved. While staff at the island's hospital hadn't tended to her eye, they did attempt to eradicate the typhoid from her system once and for all. She was prescribed a volley of medicines, which didn't work and sometimes made her feel ill. They proposed a new option. Doctors suspected that Mary's typhoid bacteria was lodged in her gallbladder. They wanted to remove it. A permanent fix, the surgery may have seemed promising
1: to some, but Mary was unwilling. The gallbladder is a small organ, nested between the liver and pancreas, that releases bile into the small intestine to help with digestion. Salmonella bacteria tend to accumulate in the gallbladder, where these pathogens travel to the small intestines through the bile, which allows these bacteria to ultimately enter the colon where it can shed out of the poop chute and into the environment. Removal of the gallbladder, or a cholecystectomy, remains a common treatment for chronic carriers of typhoid, but it doesn't completely eradicate these bacteria. Typhoid can, unfortunately, live in multiple organs, and its presence in any one organ indicates a systemic infection. Today, with advanced laparoscopic technology, removing the gallbladder is a relatively safe operation. There are, of course, risks like bleeding, bioleakage, and infection, but they pale in comparison to the dangers of removing the gallbladder during Mary Mallon's day. Mary hadn't even consented to collecting a stool sample, so it's likely that she vehemently opposed the suggestion to have an organ removed.
0: When a nurse tried to reason with Mary, wouldn't it be better for her to risk the surgery than remain on the island? Mary simply said, no. Some sources say she even believed the operation was a plot to have her discreetly killed. Perhaps driven by paranoia, after two years of isolation, Mary began to fantasize about a way off North Brother Island. And, By July 1909, 39-year-old Mary had taken action. She attempted to sue for her release on the grounds that her quarantine was inhumane. She also argued that some of her regular stool samples didn't test positive for typhoid. In her mind, this undercut everything the doctors
1: said. Testing for diseases can sometimes be unreliable, and this is certainly the case for analyzing stool samples. Stool specimens are particularly difficult to analyze because the microorganisms living within them die very quickly once they leave the colon, so they aren't easy to culture. It's also important to consider all of this in a historical context, given that scientific technique and laboratory handling was far less sophisticated than what it is today. The fact that several of Mary's movements hadn't tested positive for typhoid didn't confirm she wasn't a carrier. Several negative screenings were meaningless, given the many that consistently came back positive. And the judge presiding over her
0: pending lawsuit seemed to agree. He saw her as a danger to the public's health and her case was quickly dismissed. However, the verdict did help Mary in a rather unexpected way. It finally drew attention to her case, bringing her sympathy from the press and the public. In spring of 1909, 39-year-old Mary was interviewed by the New York American newspaper. The shocking and tragic portrait she painted of her life in isolation led to more articles, all sympathizing with her plight. Her life had been stolen away. Many people were frightened by that possibility, even if the public health board had their reasons. In response to the outcry, health officials gave their account of events, sometimes vilifying Mary in an attempt to gain support for their side. The name Typhoid Mary was popularized playing into stigma and fears about the disease. Still, Mary maintained support. She was a working-class hero, subjected to the whims of a vast, intangible medical system that had wrongfully imprisoned her. And in the wake of such widespread attention, Mary received another chance at freedom, thanks to a change in leadership within the New York City Department of Health. Dr. Ernst Lederley had just been appointed as the city's health commissioner. With extensive experience in New York's healthcare department, he was trusted in his belief that the handling of Mary's case was inexcusable. By now, New York City health officials had discovered dozens of other typhoid carriers. Almost all of them had been released and left to fend for themselves, though still periodically monitored. The only difference between them and Mary was that Mary had been discovered first. Dr. Ledley insisted that the money spent holding Mary against her will be put to better use. He set Mary free. On one condition, Mary was not to cook for anyone under any circumstances ever. Mary reluctantly agreed. After her release, Mary played nice with authorities from the Department of Health at first. Eager to be living among society once more, she provided them with her address and tried to find a job outside of her preferred field. Unfortunately, this was difficult. She was a household name now. Although the public had been sympathetic to her forced quarantine, they still knew that being around her was a risk. As she looked for work, door after door closed in her face. Desperate for income, Mary sued the city for years of false imprisonment, but the suit was dropped for unknown reasons. Eventually, Mary found work as a laundress, and her role washing clothing was, in fact, safest option. While performing that work, it appears that she never infected anyone, but she wasn't earning nearly as much as she had as an experienced cook. Adding insult to injury, the man she'd lived with before her arrest, Mr. Breihof, passed away. Grieving his loss, Mary likely yearned for the life she had once enjoyed, unencumbered by the watchful eye of the health department, free from public scorn and disgrace. Then, one day, after so many months of cooperating, Mary missed her check-in with health officials, and the next one, and the next. She stopped showing up for work, too. In fact, she'd shed the name Mary Mallon entirely. Somehow, she managed to slip into the shadows once again. Typhoid Mary was on the lam. Coming up, Mary finds gainful employment in the worst place imaginable. Now, back to the story. After her release in 1910, 40-year-old Mary Mallon was cooperating with public health officials. She reported to them about her employment as a laundress and kept them posted on her whereabouts. But by 1912, she seemed to disappear. No one knows what exactly Mary was up to in her early years as a fugitive. We do know that she went by various names to stay under the radar. Among them was the alias... Mary Brown. It's also clear that she stayed close to New York City, possibly venturing into New Jersey as well. Maybe she felt it would be harder for her to be traced in a metropolis where typhoid was common. And she might have been right. So far, the health department hadn't been able to track her down. Then again, it seems officials were more worried about keeping her escape under wraps so as not to elicit public criticisms. And eventually, while hidden in plain sight, Mary built up the courage to start cooking once again. In October of 1914, 45-year-old Mary took a post in the kitchen of Sloan Maternity Hospital in Manhattan. Going by the name Mrs. Brown she was finally back to the work she loved. But even with a new name, old problems came calling. In January of 1915, less than a year after she was hired, a massive outbreak of typhoid fever struck the hospital. 25 people fell ill, more than any other known outbreak connected to Mary. Even worse, two people died battling infection. Such a massive outbreak became priority number one for the New York City Health Department, and according to an account from Dr. George Soper, he was soon called to the scene. Dr. Soper gathered background information on the kitchen staff. When the supervisor mentioned a Mrs. Brown, the name caught Dr. Soper's attention. Mary had already left for the day, but the supervisor provided Dr. Soper with a sample of her handwriting. He recognized it immediately. Mary Mallon had struck once again. Dr. Soper brought his discovery to the Department of Health. Strangely, Mary kept working at Sloan Maternity Hospital even as the crisis was under active investigation. It's a testament to her unshakable belief in her innocence. But the fact that the hospital allowed her to continue
1: working, however, remains in question. Again, Alistair, these two episodes have relevance today as COVID-19 continues to affect staffing at hospitals. Normally, hospital employees suspected of carrying illnesses are banned from coming into work. But because of such unprecedented and widespread staffing shortages, things are no longer so black and white. In my state of California, for example, state officials are now temporarily allowing recently infected hospital staff who are asymptomatic to return to work. This has, of course, been a controversial decision, and under normal conditions, it would be blatantly unacceptable. Vulnerable populations, like those that are hospitalized, must be cared for by healthy workers. Logically, a healthcare facility back then would have probably wanted to give Mary the boot. Perhaps the hospital
0: kept her on because they were understaffed and needed Mary. Or maybe they didn't realize Mrs. Brown was actually the infamous Typhoid Mary. Still, the investigation persisted and many workers, including Mary, were required to submit stool samples periodically for testing. Back during her time on North Brother Island, most, but not all, of her samples tested positive for typhoid. Perhaps Mary believed that luck would be on her side. She was wrong one day in march 1915 mary returned to her home to find it surrounded by police officers ready for another drawn-out confrontation but this time mary accepted the inevitable and surrendered without a struggle she quietly accepted her fate by now Mary knew well enough the resources that the health department could muster. She returned to her cabin on North Brother Island to live out her days. According to Dr. Soper, Mary readjusted to life on the island. She still refused to discuss her personal life, calling it a closed incident. But nobody questioned it. Questions about Mary's motivations still linger why she refused to wash her hands before cooking and why she remained in such strong denial of her condition. She never accepted that she was an asymptomatic typhoid carrier. Off and on, she refused to submit her stool for routine testing, insisting that it didn't improve her situation and served only to further humiliate her. But as far as we know, she never infected anyone else. In later years, Mary's life improved as she accepted her circumstances. She developed friendships with her caretakers, and her cabin became less a prison and more a home. She was even given a job at the hospital on the island. Paradoxically, she was entrusted to clean and maintain some of its laboratory equipment. Mary was also allowed to return to the mainland in 1918 to buy supplies and amenities for herself and cabin. After a few of these trips, Mary proved that she would dependably return to the island and her cabin. Her days of running were over. Fourteen years passed in this way. By all accounts, Mary eventually found as much satisfaction in her laboratory work as she had in cooking and begrudgingly accepted her life in her small, one-room cabin, which she had decorated and improved as much as she could. Then, sometime in early December, 1932, 63-year-old Mary suffered a stroke and collapsed on the floor of her cabin. No one knows how long she laid there before her supervisor realized she was late to work and went to check on her. Once found, Mary received a tragic diagnosis. She was permanently paralyzed and would be bedridden
1: For the rest of her life. Because of typhoid's effect on the body, it's possible that a patient could eventually develop comorbidities that could lead to a stroke and subsequent paralysis. Although it seems Mary never had symptoms of the disease, it's possible that the underlying bacteria compromised her overall health. Unfortunately, Not much data has been collected to substantiate this because chronic carriers, like Mary, remain a relatively rare population and they're difficult to prospectively identify. However, symptomatic patients have shown higher activation of blood clotting and, although rare, a higher incidence of infection and inflammation in blood vessels and heart valves. We can't say for sure, but it's conceivable that her condition may have, in some roundabout way, contributed to her stroke. Her lack of mobility may have also expedited her
0: death. Six years after her tragic diagnosis, on November 11, 1938, Mary passed away at the age of 69. By the time of her death, Mary Mellon had infected at least 51 people, leading to three reported fatalities. The last two had stemmed from the hospital outbreak. Since then, she had spent over two decades on North Brother Island. And throughout that time, she never once wrote to or received letters from any family members. As she preferred not to speak about her personal life, it's difficult to know who she visited during her semi-frequent trips to the city. But in his own way, Dr. Soper made sure that the legacy of Typhoid Mary would be remembered, sparing the woman no sympathy in his recollections. Shortly after her death, Dr. Soper wrote an essay titled the curious career of Typhoid Mary. He described his findings about Mary's work, her arrest, release, and re-arrest, and pulled no punches with his language. He called attention to Mary's weight and so-called masculine character, including many embarrassing details that the fastidiously private woman would have most likely preferred to have taken to her grave. This, is the narrative of typhoid Mary that most know today. That of a belligerent, prideful woman who cared more for her career than the lives of those around her. However, even Dr. Soper admitted that Mary's final toll of confirmed infections and fatalities was not particularly large for an asymptomatic carrier.
1: Whether Mary's reputation is totally earned or not, her actions led to at least three deaths, probably more. Diseases like typhoid and COVID-19, for that matter, rely on asymptomatic carriers for their survival. This is because these individuals create a higher spread of the disease and in a strangely natural and covert way. The danger here is that the more an infection is able to spread, the more a virus or bacteria is able to replicate and reproduce. Ultimately, the more prevalent these microorganisms become in the environment, the more likely they are to mutate, which greatly impacts our ability to treat and contain their associated illnesses. Mary's story is as tragic as it is frustrating. I think we can all relate to being fed up with infectious diseases at this point. While Mary may have been stubborn and difficult to deal with, one has to believe that health officials could have pursued other means of educating her before thrusting force upon her. While she may have been poorly educated, it seems like a greater and more careful effort could have been employed here. It would have been in everyone's best interest for the health department to work with Mary rather than alienate her lives would have been saved, that's for sure.
0: After she died in infamy, Dr. George Soper lived on for another decade, seemingly content with his contributions to the field of sanitary engineering. Dr. Sarah Josephine Baker, who had aided in the arrest and treatment of Mary, was named New York City's first director of the Bureau of Child Hygiene. She spent the rest of her days fighting to protect the lives of newborns and infants. Thanks in part to the efforts of Dr. Soper and Dr. Baker, as well as the implementation of a safe and effective vaccine, the infection and death rates for typhoid plummeted during the first half of the 20th century. There were 639 deaths from the disease in New York City in 1906, The year after Mary died, there were only 45 in the whole state of New York. Today, Mary's cabin and the hospital where she worked have been reclaimed by nature and North Brother Island is inaccessible to the public. But the cautionary tale of typhoid Mary Mallon still resonates today as we face new and unprecedented public health hazards. The phrase typhoid Mary is now shorthand for those who knowingly or unknowingly spread disease and misfortune. Whether it's an issue of access, choice, ignorance or denial, innocent lives are always at stake when proper medical precautions are disregarded. And while Mary may not have been free in her final decades, it seems she found peace in her island of isolation no longer a risk to public health. Thanks for listening to Medical Murders. And thanks again to Dr. Kipper for joining me today. Thank you very much, Alistair. For more information on Mary Mallon, among the many sources we used, we found Typhoid Mary, Captive to the Public's Health by Judith Walzer-Levitt, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Medical Murders is a Spotify original from ParCast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Brendan Hawkins, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Medical Murders was written by Eric Stankey, with writing assistance by Lauren DeLille, fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Chelsea Wood. Medical Murders stars Dr. David Kipper and Alastair Murden.
2: Werewolves, witches, and Arthur Conan Doyle? Oh, my! Sounds like fascinating topics to discuss on our new show, Rituals, Christine. You know what, Em? It sure does. Every Monday on Rituals, join us as we explore the evolution of spiritualism and the occult through stories, practices, and the impact on modern culture. If you've heard our podcast and that's why we drink, this is the perfect pairing for you. And if you haven't, go give us a try. Follow our Spotify original from Parcast, Rituals. Listen free only on Spotify.